welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I'm about two and a half weeks into my first term of my master's program, and so far, I'm alive, and I'm going to count that as a rousing success. Originally, this episode was just going to be a tangent cast, but I thought that one, it would be mean to make people skip an entire president, and two, I thought it'd be mean to William Henry Harrison to sideline him once again, because almost all of history sidelines him, and three, as it turns out, William Henry Harrison has quite the life, and his story is a little bit too long to make a tangent cast, so today you're actually getting two episodes, not just one. I'm going to be releasing William Henry Harrison first, and then a little bit later today, I'll be releasing John Tyler. It's very exciting. However, I'm going to be posting this episode also on Patreon for my patrons, so it's kind of a two for the price of one deal. In this publicly released tangent cast that's not really a tangent cast, I will be tackling William Henry Harrison. You almost certainly learned about him in high school because he had the shortest presidency in history. But his study guide also includes Simon Bolivar, some real epic miscommunication, and some apple cider that probably didn't exist. Let's begin. William Henry Harrison was born February 9th, 1773 in Charles County, Virginia. This means that while William Henry Harrison was president after Martin Van Buren, unlike Martin Van Buren, he was born before the American Revolution, which made him a British citizen before he was an American citizen. William Henry Harrison was the youngest child of Benjamin Harrison V and Elizabeth Beckett Harrison. He had some pretty excellent credentials. His father was a delegate to the Constitutional Congress and signed the Declaration of Independence. During the American Revolution, Benjamin Harrison V was the governor to Virginia, as well as being the owner of quite a large plantation who owned quite a few slaves. Growing up, William Henry Harrison had a private tutor at the school he attended until he was 14. Then he went to Hamden Sydney College in the state of Virginia. He studied at the college for three years, where he received your classical education in Greek, Latin, and history, and not much else. After three years at Hamden Sydney College, his father sent him to Pennsylvania, to be a doctor. Since William Henry Harrison was the youngest child and the youngest son, it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to inherit the estate or any family property, so there had to be some sort of contingency plan for him to make money, and being a doctor was that plan. During his time in Pennsylvania, he lived with a family friend, Robert Morris, who, in addition to being friends with the Harrisons, was also friends with Alexander Hamilton and helped write the Constitution. During his time in Pennsylvania, William Henry Harrison studied under Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was one of the major doctors in early United States history, and studied at the University of Pennsylvania. 
Pretty soon after moving to Pennsylvania, though, in 1791, Benjamin Harrison V died. And upon his death, it turned out the Harrison family didn't quite have as much money as everyone expected. AKA, there wasn't actually enough money for William Henry to continue his education in medicine, which actually was a good thing because, as it turns out, William Henry Harrison had no interest in studying medicine. Instead, he decided that he was going to join the army. Normally, joining the army was not exactly the easiest of jobs, but luckily, William Henry Harrison had connections. Through a family friend, the governor of Virginia, Henry Lee, no big deal, William Henry Harrison was able to pull some strings and join the army as an ensign. Once he was in the army as an ensign, William Henry Harrison was sent to Fort Washington in Ohio in what is now the city of Cincinnati. At this time, the army in Ohio was dealing with the Northwestern Indian Wars. As some quick background for those of us like myself who are not experts in the United States' long history of stealing land from the native inhabitants, in the 1790s, the U.S. was dealing with the fact that the Treaty of Paris had ended the American Revolution and had said that the United States got all of what was known as the Northwestern Territory from England, and as a result, Americans started moving there because there was a lot of excellent land, but oh my gosh, would you look at that? Native Americans lived there and were like, um, hi, we were here first and we would like to stay here. Thank you very much. So, surprise, surprise, we have violent and pretty brutal conflict. Within two years of joining the United States Army, William Henry Harrison becomes the aide-de-camp to the leader of the army stationed in Ohio, who has the great name of Mad Anthony Wayne. Through his relationship with Mad Anthony, William Henry Harrison basically learns how to lead an entire army by the time he is 20, which really isn't so shabby. By the time he's 20, William Henry Harrison's mother also dies. So suddenly, both of his parents are dead, which on the one hand, tragic, but on the other hand, with his mother's death, William Henry does inherit some family land and some slaves. He promptly sells the land and slaves to one of his older brothers, and for the first time in his life, has some money that he can call his own. The next year, in 1794, William Henry Harrison has one of his first big military successes in the Battle of the Fallen Timbers. This battle basically ends the first round of Northwestern Indian Wars with a massive U.S. victory. And thanks to his really great relationship with Anthony Wayne, William Henry Harrison is allowed to be one of the signers of the treaty that comes out of the Battle of the Fallen Timbers, which ends this round of fighting, the Treaty of Grenville. And the fact that William Henry Harrison is one of the signers at the ancient age of 21 really puts his name on the map. The Treaty of Grenville is huge for the early United States. 
It allows Americans to settle a huge amount of Ohio. And it's one of the first times that the U.S. is sort of able to say, yes, we have control of what is at that point, the Northwest. Pretty soon after the Treaty of Grenville, Anthony Wayne dies and William Henry Harrison is able to take over military command of the area. And remember, he is only 21 at this point. Let's think back to what all of us were doing at the age of 21, probably not holding any major military commands. The next year, in 1795, when he's 22, William Henry Harrison meets a young woman named Anna Tuttle Sims, who is from North Bend, Ohio. Anna's father was an officer from the American Revolution and is a major political figure in Ohio. So not only is William Henry Harrison pretty into Anna, if he marries her, he would have some pretty excellent political connections in his new hometown. So William Henry Harrison does what any guy would do. He goes to Anna's dad and asks for permission to marry Anna. Her father looks at this 22-year-old soldier and says, yeah, absolutely not. William Henry Harrison doesn't let that stop him. He and Anna elope. Since William Henry Harrison still technically is on military duty, they can't exactly go off and have a nice honeymoon, so they have their honeymoon at the local fort, Fort Washington, where William Henry Harrison is in command. Anna's father, surprise, surprise, is not exactly thrilled about the marriage, so he soon confronts William Henry Harrison about the marriage and how exactly he's planning on making a living. William Henry Harrison famously responds with, by my sword and my own right arm, or at least that's how the story goes. Other sources say that William Henry Harrison might have replied with a much less cool, my sword is my means of support. Either way, Anna's father vaguely accepts the marriage. It doesn't get challenged in court. There's no duel. And William Henry Harrison and Anna end up having 10 children. These 10 children are amazingly harsh on Anna, which shouldn't come as a surprise. And she's going to spend most of their relationship being physically sick as a result of all these pregnancies. William Henry Harrison may not have been the most faithful husband. He may or may not have had an affair with one of their slaves, a woman named Dilcia, and had four children with her. This is unclear. There's no DNA evidence of this, by which I mean no one's tested the DNA of possible Descendants just hasn't come up yet, but there is a possibility that a past NAACP president is descended from William Henry Harrison and Dulcia. Like I said, we just haven't tested the DNA evidence yet, but that is a really cool historical project for someone to do. A few years after getting married and settling down, in 1798, William Henry Harrison resigns from the army which makes sense. He's married now. He has a family. He probably doesn't want to go running around fighting. But since he's married with a family, he does need a job. And with his tail between his legs, he goes to his father-in-law and asks for help. 
Thanks to his father-in-law's many connections, he's able to get an in with the Secretary of State and get a job as the Secretary of the Northwest Territory, a job which he starts in July 1798. While he's serving as Secretary of the Northwest Territory, he also takes over as the acting governor of Ohio because the actual governor of Ohio doesn't spend any time in Ohio because that's how they did things back then and someone actually has to run the area and William Henry Harrison knows Ohio really well. He would do just as good a job as anyone else. During this time, William Henry Harrison starts to develop a really great reputation. He's popular with the rich guys back east because he's really good at breeding horses and he had grown up in a wealthy family and knows how to talk the talk, but he's also really popular with the locals because he's been pushing for cheaper land prices, which would make it easier for your average Joe on the street to buy a new farm. Finally, by the end of 1798, the Northwestern Territory has enough people to officially become a state. And if it became a state, it would get representation in Congress. And it's pretty clear that if it did get representation in Congress, William Henry Harrison is who the people would want to represent them. And he runs to be that representative. He wins the election. Yes, it's only by one vote for various complicated reasons, but still, he wins. And he becomes the congressional delegate for the Northwestern Territory. Sure, he can't actually vote on any bills because Northwestern Territory, even though it has enough people to become a state, hasn't technically gone through the statehood process, but he's a delegate, he can debate in Congress, it's all very exciting. And he starts making a name for himself in Congress. He pushes for this new act, the 1800 Land Act, which makes it easier for average people to buy land in small amounts for cheap amounts of money, which makes it easier for people to buy land, which makes him even more popular. Once again, we're seeing William Henry Harrison building and building and building support. During his time in Congress as this congressional delegate for the Northwestern Territory, William Henry Harrison is going to tend to be pretty federalist. He believes in a larger federal government that's making decisions as opposed to strong state governments, which makes sense because he's not actually representing a state. Everything he does has to be done through the federal government. The next year, in 1800, William Henry Harrison is when you get another huge boost in his political career when he's appointed by John Adams to be the governor for the newly created Indiana Territory. By this point, William Henry Harrison, despite his Federalist leanings, has a reputation for being fairly politically neutral and, more importantly, for knowing what's going on in the West. As a result of this, he's going to get confirmed as governor in 1801, which means that he's not going to become governor right when the federal government is switching from Federalists 
under John Adams to Democratic Republicans under Thomas Jefferson. Due to William Henry Harrison's reputation for being more neutral, he's going to keep getting reappointed to governor of Indiana until 1809. In the middle of being governor of Indiana Territory, he also is going to have to take on the role of being the executive leader of Louisiana, and he's going to continue having both of these very disparate roles for quite some time because Louisiana doesn't quite get its stuff together until 1805. So for a year there, he's running two different states, which are very far apart, which I think shows that William Henry Harrison was very competent at multitasking. But by 1805, Louisiana is pretty well sorted, and he's able to focus mostly on Indiana. During his time in Indiana, he's really going to be focusing on making treaties with native tribes to get more and more land for the U.S. government in Indiana. For example, with the Treaty of Fort Wayne, he's going to get over 2.5 million acres of land for the United States government. Obviously, he's getting this land at the expense of Native Americans, which is bad. We should not be endorsing this, but it does show how skilled William Henry Harrison was as a diplomat. And I think it is important to note that he does do some really sketchy things in order to get this land. For example, at one point, he gets local tribal leaders extremely drunk, and while they're drunk, he gets them to sign a piece of paper to sign away what ends up being one-third of the modern state of Illinois over to him for next to no money. So not great, but extremely effective. Not everything that he's going to do as um, territorial governor, however, is going to be popular. One of these things is his attempt to bring slavery into Indiana territory. He tries this first in 1803, and it fails. But his next attempt in 1805 is very successful. He sort of forces through a law that allows people to bring in slaves that they already own into Indiana and also allows people to set up these indenture systems, aka slavery, within Indiana. And this is super, super unpopular, which geographically makes sense. Let's think about how far north Indiana is. Slavery just doesn't make sense geographically or economically in Indiana, but William Henry Harrison, as a Virginian, probably did have a stake in the slavery game. However, when Indiana Territory is split into Indiana and Illinois, the new Indiana legislature almost immediately gets rid of these laws because the Indiana legislature, which now William Henry Harrison is having to work with, is extremely anti-slavery, and by 1810, slavery is abolished throughout Indiana. So, Yay, Indiana legislature, boo, William Henry Harrison. In addition to this whole slavery thing, William Henry Harrison's habit of entering in less than savory land dealings with native tribes starts to really bite him in the ass. Throughout the early 1800s, there was rising resistance to white settlers 
especially in Indiana Territory, which makes sense. And we start to get two major resistance leaders to white settlement in the territory. There are these two Shawnee brothers, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa, and I'm sorry that I mispronounced that. I don't mean offense. I'm just learning indigenous pronunciations never really came up in my education, which obviously is a flaw of the American education system. Basically, these two brothers believe that they are protected by a great spirit, and they start pushing local tribes people to give up white items like muskets and whiskey and to start resisting white settlement. In 1810, Harrison and Tecumseh meet at the Wabash River and are trying to negotiate some sort of settlement. At this meeting, Tecumseh tells Harrison that the Treaty of Fort Wayne was illegitimate because all of the tribes have to agree to sell land, and the tribes didn't all agree to sell that massive amount of land, so the land has to go back to the tribes. And then Tecumseh goes one step further. He says that he will kill the tribes that signed the treaty, and this sort of kicks off this debate about whether or not all Native Americans form one, like, uber tribe or not, which is a debate that's sort of still ongoing in 2019, and it causes all this drama, and it sort of ends with Tecumseh saying that he will ally with England unless Harrison cancels the Treaty of Fort Wayne, which is really dangerous to the American settlers in the Northwestern Territories. If England comes in, they could wipe out these American settlers. And remember, the Northwest Territory is American land. England has no right to come in there. That causes all sorts of fun new tensions. After this meeting, Tecumseh starts building a confederation of various tribes, sort of threatening different actions. So William Henry Harrison goes to the American government and gets permission to start doing various military marches as a show of American military force. It all comes to a head on November 7th, 1811. William Henry Harrison's forces get attacked by Tecumseh's army by the Tippecanoe River. This ends up being a win for William Henry Harrison. However, he did have a ton more troops than Tecumseh, so if he had lost, it would have been really embarrassing. After this attack, there was some miscommunication over who actually won the skirmish. For a while, the U.S. government thought that William Henry Harrison had been defeated by Tecumseh and the Shawnee, and there's this panic until the correct news comes out, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, we won. And because there was this miscommunication and everyone assumed the Americans had been slaughtered, we get all this anti-British sentiment in cities and across the United States. People feel like England's to blame. They've given Tecumseh and the Shawnee weapons and are stirring up feelings against the American. The War Department even is super mad at William Henry Harrison for attacking. They felt like his position wasn't good enough and that he should have waited before attacking Tecumseh. Even after it turns out that he had won, the War Department still isn't thrilled and this is going to cause tension between William Henry Harrison and the War Department for quite some time. 
But it turns out he won, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, William Henry Harrison is an amazing general. Yay, Battle of Tippy Canoe. And remember that name, Tippy Canoe. It's when you come back. When the War of 1812 starts, William Henry Harrison is pulled away from Indiana Territory, and the War Department sends him off to Kentucky for a bit. Remember, they're kind of annoyed with him, so they're like, we're going to send you somewhere like not important to punish you. But once we get to September 1812 and things aren't going super great, he is sent to command the Army of the Northwest, and by then he formerly resigns as the governor of Indiana and is like, yeah, I should be focusing on the army full time and not trying to command an army and be a governor. I saw how that worked out when I was running Indiana and Louisiana at the same time. By the fall of 1813, the War of 1812 is going super badly, because it turns out the War of 1812 was not the U.S.'s finest moment. By then, William Henry Harrison is like, you know what? It is my time to shine. He sort of pulls together what American troops are left in the Northwest. He takes the defensive in Ohio and is really able to turn things around. Instead of playing defense the entire time, he pushes the Americans onto the offensive. He retakes Detroit. He marches back into Canada and sort of has his high point at the October 1813 Battle of the Thames, which is a huge American victory and also is kind of a big victory for Harrison personally. It's during this battle that Tecumseh finally dies. However, once again, his tense relationship with the War Department prevents him from doing as good a job as he could have. Right in the middle of his offensive, the War Department pulls him off of the front lines and sends them to a less important part of the frontier, which is a huge slap in the face. After the war, an official government investigation is going to find that he was mistreated and he's going to get a fancy gold medal in apology. After the war ends, he is going to be put in charge of negotiating a peace treaty with various Native American tribes with the help of Michigan Governor Lewis Cass. And Lewis Cass is going to be a really important name in future study guides. So remember that name. It's the first time that Lewis Cass pops up, but I promise it won't be the last. Together, Cass and Harrison negotiate the Treaty of Springwells, which helps end the War of 1812 and also gets the U.S. a lot more land. Basically, when in doubt with William Henry Harrison and his treaties, because there are a lot of them, they all end with the U.S. getting a lot more land and Native Americans getting screwed over. After the war, William Henry Harrison leaves the army, he resigns his commission, and he moves his family to North Bend, Ohio. While he's there, he starts building a pretty large family farm. Technically, this family farm is made out of wood, but I would not call it a log cabin, unlike many of his supporters. In 1816, he gets elected to the House of Representatives for Ohio, and he'll serve in the House of Representatives until 1819. During this time, he's offered a chance to be James Monroe's Secretary of War, but he turns it down. Instead, he tries to run for governor of Ohio, 
but he loses. He spends a year as a state senator and then tries to run to be in the House of Representatives. He loses. He then gets elected to be in the U.S. Senate. He serves as a senator for four years, and during the time, he gets the nickname Old Buckeye. I think he was given that nickname because Ohio was the Buckeye State, and Ohio didn't get the nickname Buckeye State because of William Henry Harrison, but I'm not totally sure what the relationship was, and don't quote me on that. In the middle of his term as senator from Ohio, he gets appointed to serve as the U.S. ambassador to Gran Colombia. Gran Colombia is the state in South America that Simon Bolivar created after independence from Spain. And he gets sent down there, and William Henry Harrison does not enjoy his time as the U.S. ambassador for Simon Bolivar. He feels like Simon Bolivar is too much of a dictator, and everything is a mess. He only has to spend a year there, luckily, because in 1829, Andrew Jackson recalls him. Andrew Jackson is basically going to recall anyone who John Quincy Adams had appointed so that he can appoint his own supporters in order to perpetuate the spoil system. After coming back from Ground Columbia, William Henry Harrison settles down with his family in Ohio. This basically is going to be his first time since 1791 that he's not serving in some sort of government position. This is really going to be the first time that he's having to like make money for himself. Because while the Harrison family in Virginia was super wealthy, at this point his own family actually doesn't have all that money. Instead, William Henry Harrison is going to be using his government pension and trying to make money off of his family farm. He's going to be growing corn and making whiskey, and not in fact hard cider like your high school history teacher might have told you. Except pretty soon, he decides that he does not support alcohol. He thinks that it's not good for people and that drinking alcohol is sinful. In 1831, he closes down his distillery and goes back just to farming. The next few years, his life is just a farmer's life. We don't have that much information about what William Henry Harrison is up to. And if we did, it probably was pretty boring. All of that is going to change in 1836. He helps write a biography about himself, which makes a lot of money for reasons that I'm still not totally sold on. I guess people just really liked reading military biographies back in the 1830s. He becomes the clerk of courts for the local county, and he meets and befriends an abolitionist and underground railroad conductor, George D. Baptiste, because even though William Henry Harrison came from a family of slave owners and owned slaves, he still managed to be friends with abolitionists because human beings contain multitudes. Oh yeah, one other big thing happened to William Henry Harrison in 1836. He was chosen to be a nominee for the Whig Party for the presidential race. Basically, the Whig Party in 1836 decided to run multiple nominees for president because that's an interesting strategy. Basically, this was the first time that the Whigs were a national political party, and their big stance was 
we hate Andrew Jackson and anyone who likes Andrew Jackson. Their strategy was to try to divide the Electoral College nationally to keep Martin Van Buren from getting a majority vote in the Electoral College and to force the vote to the House of Representatives. This strategy didn't work, but it was somewhat close. Basically, if Pennsylvania hadn't turned out the way it was, the election would have gone to the House of Representatives. It always comes down to either Pennsylvania or Ohio or Florida in close elections. After not doing well in the 1836 election, William Henry Harrison spends the next few years hanging out at home and continuing on as the clerk of courts for the local county. And then 1840 happens. And in 1840, really, everything does change for William Henry Harrison. The Whigs run Harrison as their only nominee. They choose William Henry Harrison because he's not as controversial as other Whig options, such as Henry Clay or Daniel Webster. He also has that really great war record to fall back on. Think about the last really successful president. That was Andrew Jackson. And how did Andrew Jackson rise to fame? By being an awesome general in a battle that like actually didn't matter, aka the Battle of New Orleans. And unlike Andrew Jackson, William Henry Harrison arguably fought in battles that mattered. The Whigs' plan is to run a great military general against a really unpopular president. Martin Van Buren, because remember, Martin Van Buren's presidency had been plagued by economic issues. The 1840 election ends up being amazingly nasty. We have mean nicknames on both sides. The Whigs call Martin Van Buren Martin Van Buren, and the Democrats call William Henry Harrison Granny Harrison because he's pretty old, and the Petticoat General because He's rich and doesn't have a ton of experience. They call him out of touch. They focus on how he's never really served political office and make this big deal about how he just wants to sit in his log cabin and drink hard cider. Harrison and the Whigs end up making this attack a huge selling point. They make William Henry Harrison seem like a common man who everyone will like while, mark while mocking Van Buren for being too elite which is ironic because Harrison came from a wealthy family while Martin Van Buren's parents owned an inn. There's this famous campaign chant from the Whigs. Old Tip, he wore a homespun coat. He had no ruffled shirt. But Matt, he had a golden plate and he's a little squirt. Old Tip is William Henry Harrison because of Tippy Canoe and Matt is Martin Van Buren and he was really short, hence the campaign chant. The Harrison campaign sells bottles of cider shaped like cabins and uses cabins and cider on Harrison's poster, even though William Henry Harrison did not live in a log cabin and actually didn't believe in drinking hard cider because he thought it was sinful. And then finally, we have the famous campaign slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler too, to focus on Harrison's military career with the success at the Battle of Tippy Canoe and the fact that his vice president was a man named John Tyler. William Henry Harrison also campaigned in person, which Martin Van Buren refused to do. Ultimately, 
William Henry Harrison wins huge in the Electoral College, 234 electoral votes to Martin Van Buren's 60 votes. The popular vote was a little closer, 53% to 47%. Once William Henry Harrison is elected president, he wants to show that he's both a war hero and well-educated because there's this whole assumption that he's just this Midwesterner who likes to get drunk, and neither bit of that assumption is true. He was from Virginia, and he didn't believe in drinking, and he was really well-educated. He had studied to be a doctor, and he had gone to an Ivy League school. William Henry Harrison ends up getting inaugurated on March 4th, 1841. The day of his inauguration is super cold and super rainy. Instead of taking the traditional carriage to the speeches location, he rode up to the ceremony on horseback without a hat or a coat, which was super scandalous. His speech ended up being over two hours long, and this was after it had already been edited down by Daniel Webster. In his speech, William Henry Harrison talked a lot about the Constitution and how he actually didn't think the president should intervene that much, which was kind of a slap in the face to Andrew Jackson's presidency. Once he was done with the speech, he got his photo taken, which makes William Henry Harrison the first president to get his photo taken, and then went to three inaugural balls. Very early on in the presidency, William Henry Harrison ran into some tension, and this tension was with Henry Clay. Henry Clay was the leader of the Whig Party, and he expected Harrison to let him do all the heavy lifting because Clay had a lot of experience. He had been Speaker of the House. He had been Secretary of State, whereas William Henry Harrison didn't really have any experience on a national level. Clay sort of pushed Harrison to appoint Clay's friends to the cabinet and to keep the spoil system in place, and William Henry Harrison did not believe in the spoil system. He also really pushed Harrison to make Henry Clay the Secretary of State, and William Henry Harrison instead appointed Daniel Webster to be Secretary of State. So we see some tension developing between those two guys. Generally, William Henry Harrison really quickly gets annoyed with various leading Whigs over the assumption that he will just give them jobs and that he's just going to be firing Democrats for the fact that they are Democrats. About two weeks after he becomes president, he decides to call a special session of Congress. He doesn't actually want to call a special session, but the federal government is running out of money and Congress does need to meet to deal with budgetary matters. So he calls a special session and he says, we will start the session on May 31st. But he is all going to be alive for the session to meet because on March 26th, William Henry Harrison gets sick with a cold. A lot of people think that this cold happens because he wasn't warmly dressed at his swearing-in. But the symptoms of whatever this cold was didn't appear until three weeks after the inauguration. And usually, colds come on a lot faster than that. His doctors prescribed the usual fun cures, like leeches and opium, which only made things worse. William Henry Harrison died nine days later, on April 4th, 1841, 
about a month after he became president. He served as president for exactly 30 days and 12 hours. At the time, his cause of death was given as pneumonia, but nowadays, a lot of historians think that he may have died of some form of septic shock. William Henry Harrison obviously was the first president to die in office, which caused some pretty big constitutional issues. At the time of his death, it was actually unclear if John Tyler, his vice president, would serve out the rest of his term, or if he would just be like a very quick placeholder president until like a new election was called later that year, which I will go into more detail on in the next episode. All the wrinkles about successions of presidents were not figured out until 1963 after John F. Kennedy's assassination with the 25th Amendment. William Henry Harrison's funeral was held three days later. He was ultimately buried in North Bend, Ohio. William Henry Harrison actually died without a lot of money, and the government ultimately decided to give his wife, Anna, a pension. This pension was one year of his salary as president, which is about half a million dollars in today's money. As a result of his really early death in his term, he isn't actually included in most lists of greatest worst presidents because his term was so short and basically the only thing he did was call a special session of Congress and be petty with Henry Clay. I am not going to say whether or not he was a good president. I do think, like, as a historical figure, he wasn't that great. Like, yes, he was a good general. He won battles, but most of, like, the fighting he was doing was quasi-genocide and like rights violations against native people and i do not support that so i'm not team william henry harrison so for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points over a full-on lecture let's do a quick little recap of william henry harrison william henry harrison was born to an extremely wealthy virginian family his father was a co-signer of the Declaration of Independence. But William Henry Harrison was the youngest son of his family, which meant that, gasp, he had to get a career. He was sent to Pennsylvania to study medicine. But then his father died, and he quit the whole being a doctor thing and decided to join the army. He joined the army right when the U.S. was right in the middle of killing the Native Americans, and as it turned out, he was pretty good at that. He got command of a fort in 1794 at the really old age of 21, and the next year he married a local girl, Anna Tuttle Sims, whose father also conveniently had all the political connections. A few years later, he temporarily resigned from the army and through his father-in-law's connections, got a job as Secretary of Northwest Territory, which he then leveraged into acting governor of Ohio, which he then leveraged into congressional delegate for the Northwest Territory, which then led him into becoming governor of Indiana Territory, and you get the drift. William Henry Harrison spent between 1800 to about 1810 serving in various governmental positions in the Indiana 
area. As it turned out, he was really great at negotiating land away from Native Americans, by which we mean basically stealing it. He was very popular in these various government positions, except for one tiny little misstep when he tried to bring slavery into Indiana. His biggest claim to success was the Battle of Tippecanoe, where he defeated Shawnee resistance leader Tecumseh and sort of put down his name as a great military leader. When the War of 1812 started, William Henry Harrison left his position in government and rejoined the army. Once again, he did a great job in fighting and got some pretty well-deserved attention. Once the war ended, he went back into the government, serving a variety of governmental positions, including ambassador to Grand Columbia, until 1829, when he decided enough was enough, he needed a break. He spent about the next 10 years hanging out in the family farm and not actually making hard cider, despite what your high school history teacher would tell you. In 1836, he was one of the Whigs' many nominees to take down Martin Van Buren, which failed. But in 1840, he was nominated again, and this time he was successful in his attempt to get the presidency, mostly because Martin Van Buren was so unpopular. In this go-around, William Henry Harrison was painted as the man of the people, the guy who lived in the log cabin and drank a ton of alcoholic cider, even though neither of those two images were true. Either way, he won the presidency in 1840 and was sworn in on March 4, 1841, when he made the longest inaugural speech of all time. Sadly, this speech was William Henry Harrison biting off a bit more than he could chew. He caught sick, either pneumonia or a septic shock, and died 30 days later on April 4, 1841, making him famously or infamously the shortest serving president of all time. That's William Henry Harrison. For this episode, I used William Freeling's essays for the Miller Center on William Henry Harrison and William Henry Harrison by Gail Collins. Since this was originally a tangent cast and not a full-on episode, I didn't use quite as many sources as I might otherwise. And that's on me. I'm sorry. I do apologize. Next time, which isn't really a next time, as a later today, next time, I'll be covering the life and times of John Tyler, who is an exhausting human being, and I can't wait. Until then, as always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to chat with me on social media, there's the Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or the Instagram at sadgirlstudy. This was meant to be a tangent cast, so it's going on Patreon. But if you want to financially support the podcast or listen to non-public tangent casts, become a patron. It's really fun. The Patreon is patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides.com. For $5 a month, you get access to bi-monthly tangent casts, and I really appreciate your support. 
If you can't become a Patreon, that's okay. There are other ways to help the podcast. The first and most helpful way is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And let me know how I'm doing. Please rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!